my name is Dustin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Import Cinema Club. And today, we're getting a little religious. So, warning, as per usual when we do these kind of episodes, if you are someone who believes in the Christian faith, turn it off now! Ooh, ooh, um, talking snake! <laughs> uh, uh, you sound... made this exact same joke last time Do- I did this. Doesn't sound real to me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bloody atheist, eh? I in it. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about the Ormans today, specifically Ron Orman, who was the director, um, member of the clan. But also his wife, June, a sort of co-producer and distributor, and his son, Tim. Yes. Who, near the end of um, Ron's career, before he passed away, Tim was stepping into the directorial uh, saddle a little bit more, too. And folks, what a story that we've got for you this week, because this exploitation family covers so many flavors. Oh my god, just doing research about them this week, I was shocked at stuff that I didn't know, and was actually surprised that there wasn't as much writing as I thought there would be about them. Folks, we got people here who made westerns. They worked in vaudeville. They made horror movies. They made exploitation movies. They, you know, were in the periphery of Ed Wood. But then, all of a sudden, they found Jesus. Oh, did they ever, like, as Jesus-y as you can get. And by that, I don't mean, like, forgiveness and trying to do well to your fellow human being. No, no, no. We mean God as the punishing, hateful force that if you step out of line, you will suffer for eternity. And those are the two halves. Yes. The two big eras of the Ormond's career. But, I mean, even if he didn't discover Jesus... Ron Ormond would be an incredible fact. Yeah, that's uh, true. All this stuff. So, Ron Ormond, he was born in Louisiana in 1910. He started as a vaudevillian. That's how he met his wife, June. Yeah, he was doing magic. And in the interview that I read recently, June said he was a bad magician and couldn't really uh, pull off a trick. June was a dancer. You know, they got together and... Having traveled with vaudeville for so long, they eventually settled in Los Angeles and started to break into the film industry, I believe. uh, Break into the film industry, a very lower tier, which is something that people never talk about, but Poverty Row Westerns. mm -hmm. When we talk about Poverty Row, me and Will usually talk about like Joe H. Lewis, who made a couple of Westerns. Edgar G. Elmer. Edgar G. Elmer. But like the cowboy odor was the main source of income for Poverty Row. Mm -hmm. There are thousands and thousands of hour-long programmers that were made that have completely been forgotten because... Most of them are that notable. Yeah, so Ron Ormond, I think his first job in movies was working as a technical director, quote-unquote, for a Charlie Chan movie for Monogram Pictures called The Shanghai Cobra, directed, I believe, by Phil Carlson. (laughs) Good old Phil Carlson. um, But he was, of course, still working as a vaudeville promoter, and it was in this line of work that he came upon a cowboy by the name of Lash LaRue. I don't believe his name was Lash at first. Lash is a nickname. Lash, because he was the king of the bullwhip. Which, when he started to be in movies, he was not the king of the bullwhip, and it's something he actually had to teach himself. Yeah. Which is really funny. And Ron Orman ended up directing one of the Lash LaRue pictures. He produced a lot of them. Mm. A King of the Bullwhips was not the first. It was a little bit into the cycle, and it's one that me and Will watched. King of the Bullwhip is, I believe, Ron Orman's directorial debut from mm-hmm. 1950. And uh, like a lot of uh, Ron Orman's movies in the early days, this was released through a company called Howco which was sort of a thriving exploitation company. How did this get made, company? (laughs) (laughs) Miracle pictures. If it's a good picture, it's It's a miracle. miracle. Uh, And it was, you know, uh, Howco uh, 
Hauko is perhaps best known today, if at all, for having uh, released Ed Wood's film Jailbait. <laughs> that is not how it's known. It's but... how it's known by me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but King of the Bullwhip, 58 minutes, all yep. killer, no filler. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's fistfights, there's a sidekick called Fuzzy Q. Jones, who has a big bushy beard. And you know, one of the things I love about the Ron Orman movies is they are kind of a boulevard of broken dreams of just old actors who had fallen out of fashion. Oh, I know exactly who you're talking about. Never quite made it because this bushy bearded guy used to be Fatty Arbuckle's sidekick <laughs> in the silent era. A guy named Al St. John. Uh, he does a great little pratfall at the end of the movie Loved where he it. does like a little backflip. You also got um, Mr. Detour himself, Tom Neal. Playing one of the villains. Playing Rick Dalton in this film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but King of the Bullwhip features Lash LaRue playing Lash LaRue. Mm-hmm. And, like Jackie Chan. And he's a... I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew. <laughs> if I didn't, you were going yeah. to. Listen, we're already caught in these cycles. <laughs> well, you know, we should just get married at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, he plays a U.S. Marshal, and of course, Al St. John is also a U.S. Marshal, mm-hmm. and they're on the lookout for this bandit, this sinister gang of bandits led by this one masked bandit in particular, and uh, when they arrive in the western town that he's been terrorizing, the newspaper prints, hey, look, the U.S. Marshal's arrived in town. So this is basically, somebody high up wants the U.S. Marshal's dead. There's yeah. corruption going on in this town. This is a movie that starts as the opening credit. It's over two guys just whipping each other in a whip duel. Loved it. Good stuff. <laughs> yep. So, listen, the bandit is a real good bullwhip guy. He can whip like nobody whips, but yep. except for Lash the Rue, who can also whip. Who dresses all in black with an awesome studded gun belt. <laughs> just all glittery. And Lash decides that I will pose as this bandit and I guess do bank robberies for Tom Neal. To try to get the bandit to show his face. Right. Because I'm robbing the bank. I can be sure the money will eventually find its way back to the bank. The villain is all doing this elaborate scheme to sort of like ruin the banking industry so that he can start a, a bank. You know, it's actually kind of hard to follow. It is. And I, I thought it was convoluted enough for me to be like, hmm, I am interested to see what happens next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it actually does a clever thing where you're like, oh, well, this guy is obviously the villain. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of like makes it so complicated that by the end, when it is that guy that's the villain, you're like, I forgot about him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I thought it was going to be Tom Neal. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But nope, it's like somebody, and he's like, I'm Lat... I'm the villain. Oh, no, wait, it's not him. It's this other guy. But it has everything you want in a Western. It has heroes kind of gunning the pistols out of villains' hands. Barroom brawls. I, you know, I love a good barroom brawl. <laughs> yep. Just be actors throwing big meaty punches at each other, throwing each other over tables. I'd say that Ron Orman, not a very agile director, but also not as stiff as Poverty Row Westerns usually are. Yeah. He keeps it moving. It's like a trim yeah. 57 minutes. Yeah. He's no William Whitney. No. No, but, you know, it's not a film that I'd be like, you gotta see this. But if you go, ah, it's a Sunday and I want to watch a Western I've never seen. I'm like, ah, why not King of the Bullwhip? King of the Bullwhip is, you know, by far more competent as a piece of filmmaking than any other Ron Orman movie I've seen. <laughs> I would agree. And I got to say, Ron Orman has a vast career. He's made 40 movies. As I said, there are Westerns, there are musicals, there are melodramas. He would follow there are whatever shows. He would follow whatever trend was popular. Yeah. And as a vaudeville guy, he made a lot of vaudeville 
vaudeville movies, and one of my favorites is Varieties on Parade, which is nothing more than just like a film series of stage acts, but they're amazing stage acts. I mean, they're they're so stupid. It's like <laughs> okay. jugglers and shit, and yeah. you know, people on uh, unicycle, and then every now and then, like a faded or washed up star will come out and do a skit. So like Jackie Coogan, mm. who played the kid in Chaplin's The Kid, comes out and like... Uncle Fester himself. That's right. He comically reenacts a scene from The Kid. Oh, that's so sad. Uh, <laughs> L- Lyle Talbot is in it. Oh, and Tom, Lyle Talbot. Tom Neal is in it too. The gorilla's Lyle Talbot. <laughs> <laughs> so do check out Varieties on Parade if you want to see a not great but very charming vaudeville show from circa 1953 i actually checked out the movie that he made almost right before his accident that led him to jesus i checked out girl from tobacco row not as skeezy as i hoped it was it's actually funny that he went full on to jesus after this picture because he's getting there it's a story about an escaped convict that like leaves his chain gang and then ends up being in a loving christian community who take him in and they say listen you can be forgiven Mm -hmm. as long as you turn your body and mind toward christ Mm -hmm. and then of course at the end the criminal heroically sacrifices himself so he can die and the town doesn't have to actually worry about the consequences of taking in one of these guys ron orman's best known non-christian movie and i say best known very loosely because i think ron ormond is still a pretty obscure filmmaker Mm -hmm. even at his best but it's a film called mesa of lost women oh i thought you were going to talk about another one called monster and the stripper oh okay i i didn't watch that one yeah but mesa of lost women is from 1953 and it's a movie that he only directed half of Mm. because it was it was started by somebody else, somebody who never made another thing again, and uh, Howco, I guess, got him to finish it, shoot more scenes. So he brought in Jackie Coogan, and he brought in you know a couple of other actors, and the plot of the finished film is Jackie Coogan plays a mad scientist in this, you know, off on this island somewhere, kind of a Dr. Moreau-type figure who infuses women with i guess the essence or whatever of spiders so women have you know the instincts and the strength of tarantulas or something (laughs) real spider women if you will yeah you know there's a character named tarantella (laughs) she does a sexy dance wait you mean tarantula no 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 tarantella and you know it's like the panther woman from island of lost souls or Mm. something like that and you know the the plot is people get uh, stranded on this atoll. You know, a lot of it's kind of boring, yeah. I gotta say. But a I lot mean, of it's very funny, too. I mean, Ron had no qualms about taking footage from an incomplete movie. He did it again with a Sabu film, and mm. he called his version the Black Panther. Whatever to make a buck. Like a true vaudevillian, right? You're on the road. You're, again, following trends. Whatever can make money with the limited means that you have. Mesa of Lost Women, by the way, is notable for the fact that it has a wall-to-wall kind of flamenco uh, (laughs) score. And it's the same score that Ed Wood would also use in Jailbait a year or two later. Another Howco production. And it is absolutely maddening have you seen untamed mistress i have not i almost checked it out because it is about a woman that's raised by gorillas and there's a big gorilla on the poster but then looking at a few reviews they're like no nah, it's really boring and yeah. i'm like ah i can't do it to myself well i know that untamed mistress was very much sold on the promise of bestiality 
you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's like the poster is like a big ape and there's a woman in front of him. It's like they're forbidden love. But he did it again in 1968 with the exotic ones, Monster and the Stripper. It was about like they find like a Yeti man and then they bring him to a strip club (laughs) to perform. Now, their career sort of took the family uh, a lot of places. Eventually, in the mid 60s, they settled in Nashville where they were basically the only filmmakers in Nashville and they would make more sort of exploitation movies. Yeah, like the aforementioned girl from Tobacco Road, and White Lightning Road. They made a movie called 40 Acre Feud in 1967 that's mostly notable for having a lot of stars from the Grand Ole Opry, which was uh, pretty popular at the time. But then that accident came into play. Well, there were sort of two events. In 1968, they survived a plane crash. Tim left it uninjured, but Ron and June had major injuries that took a while. And we shouldn't skip over the fact that from the few written documents around Ron's life, people that worked with him said that June was the one in charge, that Mm. Ron basically went wherever June wanted to go. And I read this in a book called White Horse Black Hat, which was written by Jack Lewis, a screenwriter who worked a lot with Ron Ormond back in um, the Poverty Row Western days. Speaking of June, you sent me an interesting article from a very old issue of Film Facts magazine, which was written by Jimmy McDonough. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's mostly structured around an interview with June, who didn't die until the 2000s. She was around until pretty recently, actually. And she's an eccentric character. I mean, she admits in that interview she really got into a cult that worshipped alien abductions yeah so there you go and she believed that like she had been abducted as well Uh and this is pre going to jesus (laughs) so you know i think that um the seeds of it were there and good old christianity is the one that grabbed hold yeah so they survived a plane crash after they survived the plane crash they made the monster and the stripper Mm. or whatever whatever the other title was the exotic ones which let us forget forever because it's not as good and then in 1970 apparently ron ormond had another almost plane crash like he had another like something that he survived again and he was basically like okay i gotta get right with god although the movies he made after this he devoted himself exclusively to making what we will call christ exploitation films yeah um you know you can bring jesus to the exploitation filmmaker but you can't take all the instincts out of an exploitation filmmaker because the movies he made after this are in legendary bad taste. Have you ever heard of Chick Tracks? These are Chick Tracks the movie. <laughs> the most famous one from 1971 is If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? And I mean, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Of all time. <gasps> this is the second time you said that today. And I believe you. This well, is, I'm not doubting you. I mean, I remember... When I was in first year university, I think one of the first times I visited the late lamented suspect video, I just like was looking through the stacks and found this thing. Something weird put it out, I bet. No, it was a bootleg company called Five Minutes to Live. Wow. Oh, I remember remember Five Minutes to Live. Yeah. If you go through old issues of Shock Cinema, it shows up all the time because that's where they're getting all their movies from. Yeah. And they put out the weirdest stuff. And I sort of blind rented this and I just I still remember watching it for the first time sort of jaw agape like what what is this like how did this get made so now (laughs) it's time for how did this get made (laughs) your eyes lit up as you realize like 
all right, it's time. <laughs> so this movie and the three films that Ron directed in his um, late career. Well, he made more than that, but he made three with one guy with in particular. one guy. And that guy's name was Estes W. Perkle. And what a name. Uh, wow. It's, it sounds made up. Mm-hmm. So this preacher... These movies are just structured around his sermons. Fire and Brimstone has never applied more, where he's telling his congregation, you will burn in hell if you do not do what I'm telling you you have to do. But specifically in If Footman Tire, it's if you let this communist scourge take over America. So his theory and the reason that if uh, theory I think it's backed up by tons of data as the movie keeps telling us you're right um, yeah you're right his his absolutely incontrovertible incro- case yep. is that America is being taken over by its licentious uh, desires sex is all around us uh, dancing why dancing is just a gateway to sex. Uh, specifically, adultery is what he says. I mean, fucking drive-in movies, like everything. Everything. You're supposed to sit at home, you throw your TV in the garbage, and you read the Lord's good word. That's all you're supposed to do. And if we continue down this path, God will abandon our country. God will stop blessing us because this is a very American exceptionalism film. And if God abandons us, that's an opportunity for the communists to take over. And if the communists take over, I mean, what I really got from this movie was they will give me candy. (laughs) (laughs) One scene where um, a communist general is talking to a class and he goes, ask Jesus for candy. Will he give it to you? Now, ask Castro. Here, here is candy. (laughs) And I'm like, he makes a good case. (laughs) But what will also happen is so much violence. Now, as you indicated, the movie has two strands. Uh, it keeps cutting back and forth from Perkle's sermon at this church. Just staring right in the camera, talking to the audience, and also real people is one way to say it that are listening to him. I mean, the movie is an amazing social document of mm. just people who were civilians in Nashville. In, it wasn't Nashville. It was New Albany, Mississippi, actually. Yep. And uh, apparently all the people who were in his congregation were people who invested money in the film. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, but it cuts back and forth between his sermon and enactments of what the communist takeover will look like. And the communists are kind of a combination of Russians and Cubans. And the theory that he's positing, you know, despite all the data that he says he has to back it up. These are true stories and we're just recreating them to show what could happen. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is he's saying that, okay, I mean, he's basically arguing that cultural Marxism is happening, you know? (laughs) He's arguing that, like, we're on our way to embracing these evil communist values, his perception of what communism... He thinks communism is sex and violence, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're well on our way to the sex part. Yeah, and, you know, to deter you from these things happening, I'm going to show you very fun versions of them for your enjoyment. But, like, what's weird is... He seems to not think that we're capable of co- of a communist uprising on our own. And by us, I'm talking about America. Mm-hmm. He, he, he thinks that, like, America will lose all its moral fiber and then it will still be invaded from externally. Yeah. You know, like, like shouldn't shouldn't the communist takeover happen from within? Nope. Because the American people are perfect, and the only way that uh, but the they're not perfect—they're having sex. No, but those are only the bad ones, and Jesus Christ will slay them any day now. And are those the, is is it because they're too busy having sex that they're 
they don't notice the communists, you know, crossing over the Atlantic. Listen, just wanting to have sex is a communist ideal. So if you're having sex, you're already a communist. So technically, it's already happening, and it is from within, but the people who are communist sleeper agents don't realize it yet. Okay, you're right. Perkle is uh, airtight logic. Yeah, airtight. There's another thread in the movie where, and this is a a trope in the Perkle-Ormond films, where there's a kind of teenage, barely legal girl in the audience who, you know, she doesn't really care about uh, God all that much. She's having premarital sex she's basically being tempted by sin and as the sermon keeps going she keeps realizing oh my god i have to give myself to christ and the big climactic moment is when you know she throws herself at the altar and uh, is finally born again and perkle talks to her very lovingly very uh probably abusive yeah very very uh seductively in in real life i mean i mean he's also abusive in this movie i mean i looked it up afterwards and while i couldn't find anything about perkle um one of his friends that he protected throughout his career bob gray who appears in these films as well he was a pastor in um jacksonville uh the baptist church he was a sexual abuser of children okay yep well, law of averages, I mean, yeah, yeah you know, you're right. probably 50% of them will be. <laughs> yes, you're being um, very uh, conservative with that belief, just like this movie is. But what it's not conservative with is the atrocious violence that's on screen. Truly hideous. Yeah. yeah. So what really struck me is the stuff that when you see it, you're like, that's not faked. Like at one point... Um, a kid who's being horribly tortured with bamboo stalks in his ears just vomits for real. <laughs> and it's so gross. The movie definitely has kind of like a Mondo quality to it. Absolutely. This movie was so successful in the church basements of Southern America that it spawned uh, a couple of sequels. The first was The Burning Hell from 1974. By the way, both If Footman Tire You and The Burning Hell were beautifully restored by Nicholas Winding Refn a few yeah, years ago. Yeah, which I discovered accidentally. I was looking for a copy that I could watch on YouTube or something, and I saw one that looked pristine, and I was like, where is this from? Who remastered this? Did Agfa get in there? And then I found that uh, Refn has a website. It's called By NWR, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> and the website is uh, remastered versions of these kind of regional movies with pages and pages of original essays written by people by um, Kayla Janice. So, like yeah. people who, and Jimmy McDonough, he did like the first edition of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you can watch If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do, and The Burning Hell in pristine Criterion like remasters for they, free they, just by going to that website. Never looked this good. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, The Burning Hell. Uh, not as good as a fitment tire you not as good but it's still got a lot of funny stuff in it yeah uh, it opens with Perkle in his office I mean it's also structured around a sermon but he's in his office and he's visited by these two young biker types a real Peter Fonda Dennis Hopper type duo yep and one of them he's like wait a minute this is a pastor's office well heck I shouldn't be here I don't believe in God and then he drives off and is quickly decapitated yeah right after <laughs> yeah Decapitation's a big thing in these films. Um, if Footman Tire, you climaxed with a child while being threatened with violence by a Cuban operator, the kid goes, Jesus, one day you died for me. Now I'm willing to die for you. Right before he is viciously decapitated on screen. So the one bad biker guy dies, and the other one, he's so upset by this. He's just witnessed his friend die. He staggers into Perkle's church. 
And what a day he's chosen, because this is the day that Perkle is delivering his sermon on about hell. And he staggers down the aisle. Perkle comes down and says, how are you, my son? And he says, my, my friend, he, he just he just died. Father, do you think he's in hell? And what oh does my. Perkle say? He says, of course he's in hell. I, I think he probably is in hell. And but, you will be, too. But what I'm worried about right now was you. So why don't you just sit here and listen to my sermon? And... The thesis of the movie is that if you're not born again right this second... Right this second! The revival needs to happen in the country or it's going to be doomed! You are going to go to hell. You will go to hell if you do not embrace Christ as Savior. And you want to know how bad hell is? It is bad. Have you guys seen Shaw Brothers movies like Black Magic? It's like that! Maggots all over you! There are scenes in this movie where you see maggots crawling on people's faces Mm -hmm. and you think, this poor extra, oh my god. (laughs) Hope this person didn't invest money in the production. Oh, we guarantee that he did. There are lots of scenes of people in, you know, wacky kabuki makeup uh, surrounded by flames, you mm. know, crying and like, oh no, oh no, I wish I had. And I wish it was just a little bit crazier. Yeah, it doesn't have that, you know, communist takeover yeah. wackiness to it. It has a real, um, what is that Strawberry film that they made of like <laughs> the people doing the play? Oh, uh, Antigone? Antigone, yeah. yeah. It, or it was another one, it was like Moses and something like that. Yeah, yeah. It has that feeling where you have flashbacks of like people like King Herod being bad and then showing up in hell. Oh, yeah. And all the biblical flashbacks are played by like southern yeah. guys with My favorite accents. scene is oh, someone goes to hell and he's like, no, why am I trapped in hell? And then it cuts back to the minister giving a sermon and he goes, you think it'll only hurt for a little while? Let's look at him a thousand years from now. And then it cuts back and it's the same guy, just a little <laughs> bit dirtier. And he's like, why do I have to be a big man? My favorite part of the movie is when Perkle is saying, you'll be in hell and you'll be in pain a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now now a million years from now a billion years here's a blackboard with how many years and it's like a hundred zeros but the zeros end like if you look at it that's because he ran out of blackboard space (laughs) no 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 if you look at the zeros there's literally white space after him like is this one will be saved (laughs) i think perkle would say no imagine this huge number times a billion that's how long you're gonna be in hell and honestly this movie is so relentless i was watching it thinking Shit, I'm a little worried for my soul now. <laughs> I mean, God, I mean, if, if Perkle's right. That thought never crossed my mind. <laughs> Not for a second. This is the difference between us. Yep, that's right. All I said is like, man, this poor crazy guy has an actual child molester in his movie. Yeah, right. If anybody's burning in hell, it's definitely uh, Perkle. After this, uh, Ron Orman made several other uh, born-again Christian movies, not all of them with Perkle. I believe he had some business disputes with Perkle. He made a film that I checked out called The Grim Reaper from 1976, which is a be- it has several preachers in it, but the story is uh, it's a family. Half the family is God-fearing and Christian, but the father and his favorite son, they hate God. <laughs> they, they have no interest in going to church. And then uh, one day... The son is a race car driver and he crashes his car while driving and the whole family is there, you know, as he's dying on the ground. And and the the brother is like, please tell me you'll accept the Lord Jesus as your savior, please, please. And the guy's dying. He goes, I will if dad does, too. (laughs) And dad's like, what? 
and then the guy dies, and uh uh-oh, he's been condemned to hell forever. It's weird that you can't just go to hell and then accept Jesus Christ as your savior in hell and then go up to heaven. Sorry, you had your chance. And as- (laughs) That doesn't sound like a very forgiving God. uh, He's not, no. (laughs) And, you know, as uh, the film points out, there's no purgatory. Certain religions teach that, but there's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. And in fact- most of the movie is a, an attempt to debunk, I don't know, maybe this was trendy at the time, like uh, sort of mysticism, like talking to the dead. Uh, which we should point out that Ron was a big fan of. He uh, wrote a book on it. He really got into psychic surgery late into his life. The, interesting, because w- what's funny about the movie is it, it doesn't actually debunk mysticism. The thesis is that mysticism is real, mm. that you can communicate with the dead, but that it's very sinful to do so. <laughs> I mean, sounds like a great movie to me. Gotta check it out. And finally, the last of the Perkle trilogy is The Believer's Heaven, where, you know, they've already taken you to hell, so this one, they're gonna take you to heaven. (laughs) And, and, you know, there's a lot of fire and brimstone stuff, but Perkle's also telling you about the glories that you'll get, and... I don't want to see good stuff. I want to see, like, kids stabbed in the eye and... (laughs) I agree. This is why this is my least favorite of them, but Mm. it's still got funny stuff, you know? But his case for heaven is very material. He's very much like... God in the Bible says that you'll have a glorious mansion in heaven. Wouldn't you like a mansion? <laughs> and <laughs> wow. And, and so you make a good case. Yep. And uh, But if everybody has a mansion, Perkle, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, he doesn't address that. And we see a lot of visions of what heaven would look like, and you know, it's just people in bed sheets in a park like, hugging <laughs> yeah. each other. Yeah. Definitely not having sex. Definitely not. Because that sends you right to hell. Yeah. So after that, Ron passed away in 1981. He had cancer. Yep. Very sad. Yeah, I'm sure he's up in heaven right now. I certainly hope so, for all the work and fear that (laughs) That he he put into it. Yeah. Yep. And his movies, other than a footman tire, still have not achieved that cult status you think they would have. They're short. They're very visceral. They're in your face. They're even in color. But it's still just bubbling under the surface. I mean, there's just so much there to explore. I'm not done with Ron Ormond. So do we have any letters this week? We do. So you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com and go to iTunes to rate and review us. Really appreciate it. I don't say it every week. And because I don't, nobody goes and does it. So please get on there, Apple Podcasts. So our first letter is from Sean White. And he goes, hey, guys. I'm a newish Patreon subscriber, and I'm always blown away by your film knowledge and how you finish each other's sentences. Ah, that's um, very <laughs> on-brand this episode. Your podcast introduced me to a few obvious movies, but I've also recently started watching Chantal Ackerman, and I was pleasantly surprised and am curious about your thoughts on other slow directors. A few years ago, I decided to relax and watch Satan Tango in one go. I remember liking it, but that could be partly Stockholm Syndrome. Have you guys ever seen it or any other Bellatar movies? Are those human condition movies or Lav Diaz movies worth a go? What are your thoughts in general about these endurance testing movies that keep popping up on my letterbox? I've put a few of these monoliths on my to-do list, but on some level, I feel like I want the accomplishment of conquering these movies as much as I want to enjoy them. Can't wait for the Godzilla special. Thanks, Sean. I mean, I definitely think part of the appeal of the movies is like having conquered them. A hundred percent. Yeah. My obsession with those long movies and writing them on list, but then never really watching them <laughs> is from the idea of like, what could an eight hour movie look like? I should put out that Out One was never designed to be one movie. It was designed as a TV series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I uh, very much actually like a lot of those endurance test movies. I haven't seen Satin Tango. Oh, I love that movie. You know, I... It's coming out soon. There's a remaster that's touring. Okay, because uh, I remember it playing once at a theater, and it said there were two intermissions and a dinner break. And I remember thinking... 
I don't know if I can do that today. Yeah. Uh, but it, I, I've seen the Turin Horse and I like it a lot. Oh, Turin Horse is great. Yeah. I mean, the thing about long endurance movies is that, you know, if you take a step back, you go, and we complain about films not being 90 minutes or 60 minutes. We waste so much of our day, <laughs> every single day of our lives. Yeah. The idea of watching this concentrated vision of one filmmaker, it's not really that yeah. much to weigh on us but it does yeah but it's a whole different kind of experience you know like it should certain of those movies can show you the boredom can have texture Mm -hmm. you know it's like one that i think of all the time is the penultimate shot of simon lang's movie stray dogs which just goes for 14 minutes and like when you're in it you have at least i went through like various emotions with what i was looking at there was time where it's like god this is going on forever is this ever gonna stop and then it's like I'm 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 hypnotized and then like if somebody makes a small gesture in the scene it's like that becomes a huge event. <laughs> I have actually been really loving slow cinema the last few years because a use of looking for the stuff that moves the fastest that it can now nothing makes me happy it needs to be faster than that. So I went the complete flip side I'm like give me something slow let me luxuriate in something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like you know being forced to look at the image forever mm. and being forced to make meaning out of it. And I think that the idea of directorial intent is something that I like a lot like a very slow camera move because like a choice was made there and you know it's almost again the flip side of like just a static shot like a very slow moving camera is like (laughs) well there's intent there what does it mean what is he trying to say you're just trying to like read into it yeah i mean we should check out satan tango when it plays at the life yeah let's do it i'm sure it will uh, come to that so that's our thoughts on slow cinema and i think we've considered doing like a slow cinema episode before but we can easily do those filmmakers on their own Mm -hmm. so our next letter is from avery brooks and it goes dear justin and will I would like to start off by saying that I discovered your podcast last summer when I worked in the back of a struggling ice cream shop and that has since closed down. I've been listening fervently to your back catalog ever since and find that you guys make me feel like the only movies I've seen are Pulp Fiction and Fight Club. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, last week's episode then, or two weeks ago. I recently listened to some of your earlier episodes for the first time, and I have to say that the relationship between you guys in those early episodes, man, is a real, like, uh, relationship-heavy email. What what was our relationship like? It's interesting in comparison with later ones, particularly as Will often seems to be barely hiding contempt for Justin. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, actually. I think think it was more of an attitude thing, is that you approach the recording as like, is this a serious thing? Yeah. And I don't know if... Well, I'll get into this a little bit later. But it has been fun to hear you two grow closer over the show. And it makes me think that in a crazy world like this one, if even a lovable, loudmouth Hong Kong film aficionado and a pretentious Godard brown noser can get along, (laughs) then maybe even America can unite its divided has once again. Uh, I should point out, that I also am kind of fascinated by Godard and Will loves Hong Kong cinema. So there wasn't that many leaps that had to be made. Yeah, these are in fact two of the subjects that we bonded on in the early days. Yeah. My question today is very specific and involves a letterbox user who I have grown strangely obsessed with that goes by the name of Neil... Bahadur. I'm not sure you know of him, but this is a guy who has in his top 10 movies of all time, Eisenstein's October, Godard's film Socialism, and Lucas's Revenge of the Thys. <sighs> uh, I, I do know Neil Bahadur, yeah. in fact. You know, when I actually went and looked and I went, I think I've seen these. The thing about Neil Bahadur is like, first of all, I find it amusing how often his opinions change. Like, he'll, yeah. he'll, he'll flip on a dime, but I also like kind of admire his his like 
I don't know. He has like a a, a goofy attitude yeah. that I like. He gave this year's Aladdin remake. I'm still reading the letter here. Four out of five stars and gave Bergman's The Seventh Seal a half star. Right. I find I almost never agree with him. And yet, strangely, when I see one of his bizarre reviews, I find myself wondering if somehow he knows something I don't. And if I've simply been viewing films wrong my entire life. I'm wondering if you think that contrarian film critique of this sort has any real value or is it just shocking for the sake of it? Okay, first of all, Neil definitely does not know something that you don't know uh, but but secondly yes i do think uh contrarian film criticism has some value because um i don't know what's that old phrase about uh dead dogma like you know you should be thinking about things from a lot of different angles you know? i agree yeah. i mean contrarian film criticism is mostly an issue to me when i'm like why am i reading this this is based in uh, nothing like if you read more recent Armin White reviews, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, I can see the movie and this is so disconnected from anything that actually exists that you're not making a case because it's like, you're like, look at this um, banana I'm holding and you're like, you're holding a hammer. <laughs> uh, yeah, with, with Neil Bahadur, I often enjoy his shenanigans. When, mm. I, when I see on Letterboxd that he's given Aladdin four stars, I feel like, yeah, that that that's that's fun. I like that. <laughs> I mean, the best thing about contrarian film criticism is if you get angry when you read something, just think about why do I love this thing so yeah. much? And then that only reinforces what your reactions are to things. It makes you kind of, you know, kind of mull it over in your mind. And maybe the person will make you reconsider it or make you have a more complicated relationship with the thing you like. Mm. Maybe a more adult relationship with the thing this you sign, like. This sounds like we're like pro-Neil on Letterboxd and take those letterbox clowns off my feet. I have no interest in them. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I like uh, Letterboxd clowns. I'm a big Sally Jane Black fan. Oh, yeah. That's someone that, no, yeah, that doesn't really interest me just give me the stuff that i like give me the candy <laughs> and just to go back to that idea of like are your opinions wrong anyone that has ever consumed any art has had those thoughts of like am i out of touch no it's the children that who are wrong moment yeah because like especially when you watch art cinema just remember that most of the people that are in positions of power are just clowns and they have no idea what they're talking about either <laughs> So I don't know if Neil Bahadur is exactly in a position of power. No, not I, a position of power, but like someone who has a lot of like ears or eyes oh, yeah, consuming yeah, yeah. their stuff. Yeah. That's what I mean by power. Is that like, well, this person couldn't have gotten here if his opinions were wrong in any way. Right. And it's like, nah, that's not really how it works. Sure. And I mean, like speaking of going back to a contemptuous uh, relationship at the beginning of the show, I think that one of the reasons for that is that I'm going to psychoanalyze Will a little bit here. Sure. Is that you don't want sometimes is that sometimes, and this has happened to me too, you don't want to like leave yourself open to being wrong. So by being like ironic or sarcastic, you make yourself bulletproof in a way. Um, yeah, there may be something to that. <laughs> uh, well, I think what I like... The thing about a podcast is mm. you go out there and it's you at the mic. Yeah. Like there's no hiding behind anything. There's no like even And there's if, not even really any editing when it's just me and you talking. Like if you write something, mm. you're hiding behind like it's not it's not literally you that people are reading. It's your words that people are reading. Mm -hmm. Uh but with when it's you and a mic, it's very unfiltered. So yeah, I was I was perhaps a little bit like intimidated by that in the early in the early going. And also, yeah, the fact that it was 
you know, uh, two more white guys with a podcast. Yeah. I was a little anxious about. Do we need this? Yeah. And it's funny because I started the podcast because I wanted to be like, I want to talk about the movies that I don't talk about on stuff like Loose Cannons mm. or some of my friends just to have no interest in. Uh-huh. And what's interesting is that when me and Will started it, we just evolved into like the stuff that we like, which yeah. is basically on the same level, whether it be like the Three Stooges or it be other challenging stuff like yeah. Gadar, for example. Yeah. So this letter has just a little bit more. It goes, for future episode recommendations, I would love to hear an in-depth analysis of the films of Carl Theodore Dreyer, as he is someone I really like whose films I rarely feel I get. Also, go along with the themes of my question. Maybe an episode in the vein of your Roger Ebert, Pauline Kael episode, but everyone's favorite gay black Republican, Armand White. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of affection for Armand White. I don't either, but he does have a really interesting book of films Film criticism when he was still relevant. The Revolution. Yes, yeah. which you had on your shelf and you lent to me that I read. Yeah. Yeah, he might be an interesting topic. Mm, I don't know if I could do like a whole episode on him, though. He's be- never meant much to me. No, you know? me neither. Yeah. And as far as Carl Theodore Dreyer, that's one of those vegetable episodes. I love Carl <laughs> Theodore Dreyer, but like we ha- both have to sit down and watch a bunch of his films. But I'm sure we will get to it eventually. I can almost guarantee. I really like Vampire a lot. Yeah, I love. I mean, I, and it's and Gertrude and Gertrude, Gertrude is yeah. fantastic. All yeah. his camera moves and like they're not motivated, but like they're so, he's so obsessive with them. Yeah, the thing about Carl Theodore Dreyer is like. You know, so much has been written about him mm-hmm. that, like, you have to kind of almost, like, live up to it. Yes. <laughs> you know? With I mean, fucking Ron Ormond, it's easy as hell. That's what keeps us from a lot of stuff, because we're like, hey, we should do, like, a Tarkovsky episode. It's like, uh, what are we going to say? You know, it's it's the feeling that I had, and Will has said, like, that's not what the point of university is, where they're like, explain to me this subject, or give me your opinion on this philosopher. And I'm like, why the hell would I write something? Like, everybody else has written it. I'll go read these if I want to know about yeah, it. Yeah, we definitely feel a bit that way. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for that letter. Uh, and the, we will definitely consider those topics. And you can email us again at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So, what are we doing on the Patreon? We're getting a head start on Shocktober. Technically, this is a Shocktober episode, but we didn't do a... Well, there's nothing more terrifying than the fires of hell. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But on the Patreon, by popular demand, by which I mean a letter writer asked us last week to do it, and we were in the mood, we watched The Devil's Rejects by Rob Zombie. Mm -hmm. So check it out. Do we like Rob Zombie? Do we think he's a fraud? Well, you're going to have to pay $5 a month. Go to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club and become a Patreon subscriber. And next week, it is Shocktober. I'll join with you on that next week. Oh, so it's not official yet. I've forgotten. You're leaving me hanging. Yeah. Witches cackle. But we will be starting our annual horror month. Which is our uh, least popular month of the year. But, you know, sometimes you gotta gotta do it for yourself. Yeah. And we're going to be starting it with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. Mm -hmm. So we're going to check out, obviously, the Toby Hooper original. And then his kind of repost to that, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And we'll also be watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. Starring Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger. Who actually demanded that their likenesses be taken off the newly commissioned Blu-ray artwork. (laughs) (laughs) Even after all these years. (laughs) That is hilarious. So um, we're going to talk about what the original movie is, what the sequel is, and how does it evolve? How are there so many Texas Chainsaw Massacre films? Mm -hmm. So, check in uh, next week, and until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Before we get to the back matter, I'd just like to thank a few people who recently became Patreon subscribers, including Greg McDonald, Robbie Kachir, Nick Barzak, 
Elias Brander for becoming a $10 patron. Thank you very much. Liam Rennie, Blisht, Graham Paul Donovan, Manuel Labs, Joseph DeLeo, Anders Bosca, Tyler Thibodeau, James Deegan, and Michael Willis. Thank you very much for your support. We couldn't keep doing this without you. Well, you did something that you said you wouldn't do. I saw the new Rambo movie. And, you know, we were talking about this movie a month ago, and I was like, you know, this looks really offensive and racist. I, I, I might not see it. I think you actually said it definitively. You're like, I'm not going to go see it. And I knew you were going to. I'm probably going to see it, too. Who are we kidding? You were mocking me at the time. You were like, of course you're going to go see it. Yeah. And I was like, uh." (laughs) I know you better than you know yourself. And, you know, obviously I went to see it. And... Um, I mean, it definitely lived up to its promise. Mm. Um, it's, it's very racist. Um, I had a kind of good time at it in the same way that I had a good time watching Death Wish 3. Oh man, I'm, I'm ready to race out and watch it now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really is a disgusting film. (laughs) It's interesting that we can appreciate Death Wish 3 now as like a big goof, but Rambo, I mean, we can still enjoy it, but we realize that in this moment in time, it has never been more evident that this stuff is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's because Death Wish 3, it's old, it's mm-hmm. kitschy, it's yeah. a relic of another era. Although, you know, probably uh, probably the conservative stuff in it is still relevant today now mm-hmm. that I think of it. But uh, Rambo, Last Blood, you know, it's like what Donald Trump said. You know, they're rapists, they're murderers. Uh, they're not sending their best people. And some of them, I assume, are good people. And it, that's the movie's view of Mexicans. It's not like um, the people who made the movie went, oh, no, Donald Trump is demonizing Mexicans. Oh, are people going to view our film in a, a light that we didn't intend it? Nah, this is the light that they intended to make the movie. Yeah, there's no subtext here. <laughs> no. And so something that I thought was interesting about the movie is so Rambo has this kind of surrogate daughter. It's mm. not really his daughter, but it might as well be. Because I don't believe this began life as a Rambo script. There is no way it did. (laughs) Uh, She runs off to Mexico to find her biological father. Finds him. Goes badly. Um, Meanwhile, she goes to a club later that night. She's uh, kidnapped. Uh, I am going to spoil some of this movie, but it's fine. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, you can say that Rambo ripped someone's throat out, but then you actually see it. It's a completely different experience. Exactly. So, you know, she's sold into sex slavery. She's plied with drugs. God knows what happens to her in the few days that she's Mm. there at this brothel. Rambo saves her. And then, you know, as he's driving her home, he's trying to keep her alive. He's trying to talk to her. She dies on the way home. And what I realize is, well, of course she has to die. Her body's been sullied. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not the sort of movie. This is how racist the movie is. Yeah. This is not the sort of movie where a woman can survive being raped by Mexicans. And have to deal through, like, what it means to keep going and how people actually react to you. It's not like Rainbow's going to put her in, like, a therapy class and then she's going to be, you know, ostracized from her friends who knew know what happened to her. He's not going to deal with that. He's just going to kill the people that did it. Yeah. And and she, she has to die. She has to be a martyr. And it's, it's not like... Like the searchers, yeah, where there's kind of a complicated thing where Natalie Wood gets to live, mm-hmm. um, and John it, Wayne is the bad guy in that movie. Right. It's if the searchers were just racist, mm-hmm. um, but Rambo rips a lot of throats out at the end, right? Um, spoiler: uh, he rips something else out too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I heard that they actually had a version of this movie that was not super violent at the end, and they had to do a bunch of reshoots to make 
all the stuff that people like happened at the end of the movie. Well, I'm glad they did. Yes. Yeah. Can it, you imagine that it was just like a dry, actionless climax to the film? Yeah. I mean, come on. The whole point of this movie is, that, I mean, the previous Rambo, Rambo 4, mm-hmm. also disgustingly violent. Yeah. And racist as well in different yeah, ways. Yeah. yeah. In ways that to me and you, white middle class people, is not, is it's not, not as immediate. Immediate. Yeah. yeah. So we can be like, haha, yes, we can watch it from a distance. Also, Sylvester Stallone looks really bad oh does he i mean my god what what has this man done he, to himself he's looked monstrous for the last decade though Ooh, i mean a lot of unforgiving close-ups in this one <laughs> shit you remember when i don't Re- feel like, i feel like he started looking bad sometime in the mid-2000s like in copland he still looked like a normal yeah. enough human being and then by the time rocky balboa came around like well you know what monster i mean you know what movies demanded of him was to still look like an action hero right yeah. so the chemicals that he's putting into his body to look like that are just ravaging him fuck i mean clint Eastwood, the plastic surgery clint eastwood never did this no I mean, he just allowed himself to get old yeah i mean because clint arnold eastwood- doesn't look like a monster no no, Arnold doesn't look like a monster. I don't think... I think that uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold are probably treating their bodies a little bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Stallone. Of course, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger would never use steroids. Never. Ever. How dare you say that? You're right. Do you remember... This is, I'm reaching back into the pop culture uh, memory bag. When Rambo 4 was coming out and Sylvester Stallone did a Q&A on Ain't It Cool News. Yeah, that was... Well, Stallone, I think... He had a whole, like a whole relationship with Harry Knowles. He did, like because he premiered a bunch of his movies at Butnumathon, the film festival that Knowles used to do. And like Knowles would like visit the sets of his movies. Yeah. and uh, yeah, he did a bunch of Q and As, and he always came off as like pretty affable. And yeah, those. and like a friendly, kind of open kind of guy who would admit that a movie is bad. Yeah. Sometimes to the point of like, come, it's not that bad, Rocky Five. <laughs> you know, there was a really funny sketch on Saturday Night Live when he hosted it in mm. the nineties, where it's like. Uh, uh, Norm MacDonald is in it. Norm MacDonald has a car accident and Stallone runs up to, you know, try to rescue him. And he's like, keep breathing. Keep, keep, uh, keep, uh, keep, you're going to make it. And Norm MacDonald keeps being like, Hey, uh, remember, remember rhinestone. <laughs> that was a, that was a terrible movie. Right. It's like, ah, it's like, are you okay? It's like, ah, oh, I just remembered staying alive. <laughs> uh, well, that's weird that Norm Macdonald would know that Sylvester Stallone directed staying alive, which uh, for the record is very fun. I love staying alive. I mean, it's weird. Cause like Rambo five, I'm like, how many Rambos are there now? Yeah. It doesn't really line up with the kind of public image that Sylvester Stallone has been trying to cultivate. Cause remember that video that went around where he's like, Oh, you know, when the Republicans um, took Rambo as their own movie, I was like, and then he like very exaggeratedly like throws the mic down. Oh yeah, Stallone pretending that Rambo isn't political. I mean, <laughs> have you ever heard a more disingenuous claim than that? <laughs> Rambo! <laughs> Rambo! 